Welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I'm a novelist, a journalist and someone who has locked her four illegitimate but charming children in the attic above your grandmother's house. Today I've invited author Julie Cohen to talk the 1979 gothic horror classic Flowers in the Attic. Julie, welcome to the podcast and to my childhood. Hello Caroline and welcome to my teenage years. <laughs> when I DM'd you to ask if you wanted to be on the podcast because I've you know seen you on Twitter for a long time and really interested in what's in that whole head of yours um, and then you said Flowers in the Attic, yeah. my, I just transcended my body. <laughs> Because I didn't discover a lot of the chiclet that you talk about until I was much older in my 20s mm-hmm. and at university. When I was at school, this was what we read, Flowers in the Attic. Oh, yeah. We yeah. passed it around. I read that in Stephen King, and we passed it around, um, and page uh, 355 turned down <laughs> <laughs> so that we could read it under the table in Miss Wood's English class. So um, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit younger than you are, but this um, came out, this is the heyday, this was the 80s really, it came yeah. out in 79, but then it just sort of passed between girls um, in this very sacred way. Um, so because I went to school, you know, in secondary school in the 2000s, I was the person who introduced this into my class. Oh, I so cool. I was patient zero. <laughs> <laughs> because my sister, who's ten years older than me, she had read it and she'd passed it on. And I like I remember that moment of her giving me this book clearer than any book memory ever. Like she she walked into my room with the book behind her back and she pulled it out and she was like, You need to read this. And I was like, Shut up. And she was like, No, no, no. And then I read and it just like everything, my whole life pivoted on that moment. <laughs> I feel like every single thing I've written since then has been informed of Flowers in the Attic. I think everything I've written has been informed by Flowers in the Attic too. And I mean both of us have the same edition in front of us. Disappointingly, we have the new edition that doesn't have the famous inlay of the kids behind the attic window, which many people remember. But it um, has a quote from Gillian Flynn on the front saying, I will probably be clutching flowers in the attic in my gnarled hands on my deathbed. That is the author of Gone Girl. Yeah. And it completely makes sense, right? It does. I have this theory that women's fiction sort of comes down in three strands and like there's one strand that comes from Jane Austen uh-huh. which is um, you know a lot of the chick that you've been talking about right um, and especially like Bridget Jones diary sure. there's another strand that comes from the Brontes um, oh. which this comes from but actually even before the Brontes from the gothic novel tradition which went down to the Brontes and then this is such a gothic Bronte-ish novel that is completely correct. And oh my god! And that has gone to domestic noir. Yeah. In our current publishing. Yeah, that, thing, yeah, because Flowers like. has drafted down into noir, like Gone Girl and yeah. Girl on the Train, that kind of thing. What's yeah. the third strand? The third strand is more literary fiction, like um, George Eliot. So more sort of Middlemarch and that. yeah, so more socialist, social realism. <sighs> Well, okay, I'm going to get into the plot summary before we go too far down that road because already my mind is blown and we're like three and a half minutes into recording. So, I mean, it's a very confusing, unwieldy plot and I've tried to condense it as much as I can into this sort of paragraph. Um, Just so you know, we always talk about, um, for listeners, we always talk about spoilers on Sentimental Garbage. That's kind of the thing. But for this book in particular, a lot of the reading it is in the twists and the momentum. So I would really recommend if you're going to read one book before you you know, because lots of people listen and then they read. But this is the one you want to read first and then come back and listen. So go away and come back. Also, trigger warnings, too, I think, with this book. Trigger warnings. Some very dark things in it. Yeah, sexual violence, uh, rape, murder. <laughs> like, um, it's all there. So yeah, there are some caveats on this episode. And now I'm going to go into the plot summary. <laughs> dun, okay. dun, dun. 
So we meet the Dollengangers. The Dollengangers are this perfect loving family um, from Pennsylvania uh, in the 50s. And it's all told through this narrator who is Kathy. She's 12 years old. She wants to be a ballerina. She comes from this loving family. She's got her older brother, Chris, who's 14. The, her younger si- um, siblings, who are Corey and Carrie, they're these twins. And they're, I think, six at the beginning of the book. Um, and then she has these um, these parents, these beautiful blonde parents who are just completely obsessed with each other and it's it's all it's all very lovely. One day this loveliness is shattered when her father who travels a lot for work is killed in a road accident and then it is revealed to the children that um Corinne their mother has no marketable skills. <laughs> and um <laughs> and uh, and they're also very in debt. All of their stuff is bought on credit and she says to them uh I have nothing, we have nothing. The only hope we have is that my family who disinherited me when I was a teenager um, are very wealthy and we're going to go back and win our way back into that fortune. She then reveals the reason that she was disinherited was because she eloped with her half-uncle who was the children's father who's now dead and uh, in order to sort of win back the very religious parents who saw this union as being uh, you know, sacrilegious. She has to pretend she never had children. And in order to do that, she has to lock them in the attic of her childhood home, which is this huge, sprawling southern mansion called Foxworth Hall. And there they stay for the duration of this book, which... Three years. Three years. All right, did I, did I leave anything out? <laughs> well, there's a lot that happens in that attic. There's a, there's a heck of a lot. I'm going to take a long sip of my tea. <laughs> Before we get into the heck of a lot. But my, you know, my literary theory for this book, you're just giving that. I mean, we've got Wuthering Heights in there. We've got um, Mm. Jane Eyre. There's a lot of tropes that come from Bronte novels in this book, which are fantastic. I have never made that connection And the mad woman in the attic. Yes. The sort of, the idea that you can put your problem somewhere, you know, and that you can Mm -hmm. control people as if they're resources. And that if you just sort of... Because it, it's very clear that the reason she does this is because she's genuinely destitute and she has nothing. She feels like there's nothing else she can do. But the most chilling thing about the novel is that slowly this mother who did this thing out of desperation, who you feel like the family are the unit and she's just doing her best, she becomes lured away by wealth, by romance, by travel, and she gradually forgets these children mm-hmm. and turns on them and they turn on her and it becomes this war, really. Yeah, and she becomes evil. Um, and actually, it's. I was reading this, and it's right at the midpoint that it happens. Literally, that you discover, the smack literally middle. at the midpoint, you discover that Corinne has um, turned against her children. Okay, give me a little reading. Um, it's when she slaps Christopher. Moving swiftly and with strong purpose, Mama reached his side. Her hand lifted, and she delivered a hard, stinging slap against his cheek with an exclamation point. There are a lot of exclamation <laughs> lot. points in this book. <laughs> yeah, there are a ton of them. Yeah. <laughs> then, before he could recover from the shock of that, her left hand lifted, and the opposite cheek felt the strength of her anger! Exclamation point. And that is when we know that she has turned against, because Christopher yeah. was always her golden boy. Yes, so this this book is very famous for the incestuous relationship mm-hmm. um, that that chiefly occurs between um, Kathy and Chris. So they're put in this attic. They're at these very, you know, 
pivotal ages for sexual development. Mm-hmm. She's 12, he's 14. They start to develop, they start to have to parent their own siblings mm-hmm. and they sort of adopt this kind of like, we're a family, this is what we do. I pretend to be the mom, you pretend to be the dad and it's like a coping mechanism. But then this sort of gets confused. All they have is each other and then they end up in love, really, yeah. in a very romantic, sexual, yet very safe and trusting love mm-hmm. that also includes a very shocking rape scene. Yes. Um, that, that I think is what everyone remembers the most about this book. That's what everybody remembers is that page, which happens quite close to the end. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really, it's, it is not just a book about like two siblings falling in love. It is very much a book about about family and the, and, the, and the traps of that. And it's all through this gothic lens. But really, because mm-hmm. from page one, there is kind of an incesty vibe. Oh, not even kind of. <laughs> not even kind of. So on page 11, when the father is still alive, I was mm-hmm. reading this, I was going, oh my God, I didn't re- realize this because I read it when I was 12, 13, and I didn't even notice. But um, when the father's still alive, they're about to, the mother's about to have the twins, and Kathy is worried that her dad won't love her yes, as much. Yes, I also and flagged this. And he brings her a little ring with a stone in it and he gives it to her and he says, um, and with this ring, I do vow to forever love my Kathy just a little bit more than any other daughter. That is fucking creepy. It is so creepy and it's even creepier when you realize what happened, what he did to Corinne because he met her when she was 14. And he was 18. He was 17, 17, 18. 18, But he groomed her until she was 18 and could run away with him. I mean, that is child abuse, what he did with yeah. her. It's not just incest, it's child abuse. And um, he's doing the same thing to his daughter. And, and it's this weird thing, because when I read this as a kid, I, I took it at face value of like, oh, you know, they had this beautiful, I think this wonderful, handsome father, and everyone's always talking about how handsome and wonderful and smart he is and yeah. how good he is at his job. But like the way he sort of like demands physical affection from everybody, like he comes through the door every day, he goes on these long business trips and he comes back saying, come greet me with kisses if you love me. Yeah, yeah. Which is a fucking weird way to greet your kids. <laughs> and gives them presents. And that's yeah. the sort of, exchange in this book is money for love and love for money. Yes. This book is yes. about money and love. And and the material sort of belongings in this book are described with such passion. It's When I was talking about this book with somebody who'd read it before, I was like, it is really weird because this book makes child abuse aspirational. It does make child abuse aspirational. <laughs> in a really, really bizarre way. And actually, before we go any farther with talking about how problematic this book is, I want mm-hmm. to say very, very clearly that women are allowed to have whatever fantasy they want. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that wholeheartedly. Like, yeah. I, I think there are a lot of really problematic ideas in this book. But I loved it as a kid. And I still love it. And we should be allowed to love it no matter how problematic it is. Don't you yeah, think? No, I completely agree. And I actually, I read something that I had never thought about before um, about this book about um, why so many teenage girls loved this and and like found it sexy you Mm -hmm. know and it's not because there were all these teenage girls who wanted to kiss their brothers it was because they wanted to feel their sexuality in like a safe way and what's what's safer than your own family you know yeah that's interesting and the way they talk about their love too is always in a fairy tale they use fairy tale language for each other so it's even safer yeah, it's it's very much caught up in these games and narratives that they invent to survive this terrible life that they have. Um, and I, just the sort of, I feel like I will never know a fictional place the way I know that attic in that bedroom. Mm-hmm. 
So the, 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 the format is very much like there's like this tiny, it's a, it's a good sized bedroom with these two double beds and all this heavy furniture and an ensuite bath, a long staircase, and then this enormous attic that you just can see going on forever and ever and ever, right? And um, then a little schoolroom off the attic, and it's like, mm-hmm. I know it better than I know the Anne Frank annex. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just so in my head. And I think that's a huge part of why it works so well because, I don't know, you just know that world so well. I think it's a very basic thing to say, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> but also it's – so I'm going all English lit major here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's also the brain. So, you know, whenever you talk about a, an attic in a book, it's usually the psyche of somebody. So they've oh, got right. this sort of very pu- – they've got the public-facing sort of – place where they have to be good and they're not allowed to touch each other and they have yes. to sleep separately and the grandmother can come in at any minute and watch them and they have to keep it clean and tidy and then they have this attic where they're allowed to roam free they can um, you know free being as free as they can be but they can they can decorate it however they want that's where the sexual encounter happens that's where so many things happen that are really important to yeah. their development and then Chris and Kathy have uh, um a roof where they can go out together, which is yeah. their sort of adult space because yeah. the children are too scared to go there. So it's it's almost like a symbol of their development. It's very strange. I never thought about that way, but you're completely correct. Yeah, everything interesting happens in that attic, yeah. and which is why it's, you know, it's flowers in the attic and not flowers in the spare bedroom en suite, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> And also how a book that's really set in a small space. I mean, when you're writing a book, it's hard to set a book in a really, really tiny space, Mm -hmm. a one room thing. Um, But this works really well. And you don't you feel that it's confined because they're stuck there and powerless. But you also feel that they've made this realm. And are. it's and it's so rich with fantasy and, and she dances up there and you know and, and Corey plays music up there and they have plays and mm-hmm. and you're right, they do use all the sort of fairy tale language. And also there's like they there's kind of stacks and stacks of trunks and old clothing and and, and uh, broken vitriolas and stuff and they literally pull out um Confederate and um Yankee sort of uniforms and yeah. it's like all literally all the family secrets are stuck are locked in this attic. Yeah. So and they are the family secret. Yeah, they and are. And they are they're also up there. Um and it's it's fantastic. I'm sorry, I'll, I just keep going back to and it's fucking fantastic. It's just great. I mean I, it could it could be it could lag in the middle, but it doesn't. And there's yeah. some sort of quiet bits in the middle. They spend a lot of time talking about adolescence and the changes that their body makes, which is maybe why it's so fascinating to young girls, this book. Yeah. Because it's there's a lot of stuff about periods and Chris has wet dreams and, and there's that, you know, just talks about her boobs coming out and the hairs. I mean, there's this one bit where she sits and plucks out all the hairs yes. that are coming. And it's quite sweet, you know. Yeah. But it, weird. Kind of, <laughs> it, but weird, but like it's like every, no, it's got that kind of thing of like wherever you are, no matter what your situation is, these things are unavoidable. You can't mm. stop them or wish them away. And the mother basically does try to wish them away. So she she comes with presents to sort of assuage her guilt that she's completely forgotten about her own children. And she like she'll go to Europe for three months and then come back and be like, I know you've been locked up here, but I bought you this velvet gown. Yeah, which doesn't fit which anymore doesn't fit she because she doesn't know that they've grown up. Yeah, and she she will she will refuses to acknowledge that they are growing. And even um at one point it's a very traumatic part of the book, uh uh Kathy is punished for looking at her own body by looking at her naked body by her grandmother um, and well, her punishment is that um, her hair is tarred while she's asleep she's beautiful long blonde hair that has come it comes back to a lot the blondness of these yeah. kids comes back to a lot and um, 
they have to cut off her hair basically to save it and he uses his chemistry set to make a solution to get the tire it's very traumatic for her because um, it's her last kind of thing it's the last thing that she has and uh, then she has to cut her hair and it looks awful it's just like this weird hacked up fringe and stuff and her mom kind of comes back in and she goes oh Kathy how practical of you to cut your hair short and it's just completely she doesn't engage with their lives mm-hmm. at all and I think that's like I'm sorry, I'm sort of railroading a little bit here, but I think it's, it speaks so much to how trapped teenage girls feel by their mothers. Yeah. And that sort of thing of wanting to rattle your parent and being like, I'm not a baby anymore. Um, and that's sort of an operatic version of this here, right? It is. Yeah, it is. And Kathy is the rebellious one, which I think is interesting too. So yeah. Chris is the mummy's boy. He's the good mm-hmm. one. Whereas she's the one who says, um, I always see the bad side of everything yeah. I want to. And and I could really identify with that because that's, you know, the way I was in my family, right? right. <laughs> well, so what's your family person. set up? Oh, my family set up is not gothic at all. So, you know, my parents were not related to each other. <laughs> <laughs> no, really? I didn't know that families came that way. <laughs> <laughs> and I never had anything going with my brother. But I think but I do think the the thing about Gothic is that it is sort of normal tensions and usually family tensions, but just writ large, it's your normal sort of development, mm-hmm. um, just exaggerated to an extent where it becomes horrifying. Right. Does that make sense? You no, know, it completely makes sense. And um, when I said earlier on uh, how I feel like everything I've ever written has been has fallen out of the attic, essentially, yeah. um, that's, what, that's what I did with my first book. It was like, I want somebody, the plot is somebody's having this affair and, and sort of loses themselves in it, but she literally does, like her hair falls out. And, and I was reading back and it's, it's about like her body wasting away. And this book is just about their bodies wasting yeah. Throughout these years, they spend like that is why it never lags. I think is because even though their days are very samey, and you're you get you get it sort of lulled into the lullaby of like, and then we wake up at this time, and then we do this, and then we do this, and then the twins go to bed, and then we go on the roof, and blah blah. blah. Um, they're like they're mental attitudes and their physical bodies are wasting and changing. So mm-hmm. we meet Kathy at the beginning and she's like, she, yeah, she is a bit, a little bit rebellious. She's kind of like this rambunctious sort of smart talking kid with loads of big dreams and whatever. Mm-hmm. And she's very relatable in that way. And But she talks in this like kind of weird 50s patter. It's like, <laughs> golly lolly mama. And it's so wholesome. It's so like bread and cheese. Um, and then her her sort of interior monologue goes from like, Oh gosh, isn't isn't life crazy to like my mother is a poison witch mm-hmm. and everyone on earth is hideous mm-hmm. and God doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although her her view of men is very different. So one of the things yeah. I've noticed about this, which really struck me reading it now, which didn't strike me when I was reading it as a teenager, is how it's only the women who are evil. Yes, and which even, might explain why Gillian Flynn likes it so much. <laughs> <laughs> but the men do really bad things, but they are mm-hmm. never, ever held accountable. Never. That is so true. Yeah. So the, it's, the grandfather is the person who caused all this problem, but mm-hmm. he doesn't even appear in the He's book. not a character, They really. see him from above, but that's it. He never, he never really appears. The, the really evil ones are the mother and the grandmother. And even when, when Chris rapes Kathy... Um, mm-hmm she immediately forgives him and says it was my fault, mm-hmm. immediately. Um, the 
uncle, the half-uncle father. Yeah. Um, who groomed a 14-year-old. Who groomed a 14-year-old and then is doing really the same thing to his own child is a god. She sees yeah. him as a god on earth. Um, and so it's it's the men, while being terrible in this book, right? get such With an easy time the exception of, it. of um Corey, of, who gets to die. Poor Corey. Corey. Corey, <laughs> Corey. Spoiler, Corey <laughs> dies. Um, and okay, and this is a massive spoiler, which is Corey's death. So the the big climax of the book really is um so these they get sicker and sicker. Uh Corey, who kind of has always had a weak constitution, these two twins, Carrie, Carrie is the girl and she's sort of very bossy and mm-hmm. yeah, a, a real little madam from the beginning and never really stops being one. Um and then Corey is sort of the sensitive one. He's like, he wets the bed a lot. He ha- he needs hay fever shots, but he can't get them because he's in the attic. And then he gets sickest of all. And eventually they sort of demand their mother, you have to take him to the hospital. You can't ignore us anymore. You won't, you, like, you can't do this anymore. She takes him to the hospital and she comes back two days later to say Corey died. But she doesn't pneumonia. take him to the hospital. No. Nope. And then you find out, oh my God, in the film, you find out that she didn't even bury him. She put him in a trunk. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. they find him yeah. in Pedals on the Wind. Oh, my. <laughs> Pedals on the Wind, which is the sequel. <laughs> the way you said that, Pedals on the Wind. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. Um, um, but So you, yeah. I, I've talked too much, but you tell me about why Corey died. So Corey dies. They find out later that Corey dies because, oh, through a bit of nice, convenient sort of overhearing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of convenient overhearing. Yes. Yeah. They find out that the... The powdered donuts that they've been given for months now were coated not with powdered sugar, but with arsenic, mm-hmm. with rat poison. And because Corey was the smallest of them, he's the one who got the sickest. But they've all been getting sick. And they assume that it's the grandmother who is sending them up. But then they find out that it was actually the mother who was poisoning her own children, which is just <sighs> Terrible. It's all real Greek tragedy stuff. Oh, yeah. Everybody dies. It's like Les Miserables. It's like a Greek tragedy. Like, even like the mother says offhandedly at the beginning of the book, and my two brothers who died in road accidents. Like, oh, yeah. people con- constantly die in road accidents in Virginia Andrews' books. But yeah, no, I think that that twist was one of those, like, and I, but you've already had a brother and sister who are like in love with each other or whatever and you're, you're kind of you think that's going to be the main thing and then literally in the last 20 pages you're like and the mother has been killing you the whole time yeah um, and I think we find out in later books when Corinne because there there are four books in the series um, Corinne explains that her plan was to get them a little bit sick smuggle them out to a safe house um, and then set up a life for them there yeah right do you believe that I don't believe that you no. believe that she was murderous yes yeah. yeah she was just trying to get rid of them because People are evil in this book. Women are evil in this book. Women. There was something that occurred to me on my way here was I was thinking about the men and the women in this book and and why women love this book so much. And I think maybe one of the reasons is because the women are the ones who have all the agency in this book. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, they do all the good things and they do – there aren't that many good things, but they do all the bad things too. Um, And the men are sort of wishy-washy. Yeah, there's Bart who is their new stepfather. Uh, yeah. So halfway through the book, Corinne remarries and neglects to tell, <laughs> to tell her new handsome lawyer husband that she has four children 
slowly dying. And the only time he appears in the book is trying to have sex with Corinne. They watch her. And one moment where Kathy escapes and leaves the room to, they're trying to get money so they can escape. And she goes to try to get some money, steal some money from her mother's room. And her stepfather is asleep there. Yes. Um, Beautiful with a mustache. His Mm -hmm. mustache is quite lovingly described and he's he's lying there asleep like sleeping beauty and she walks up like the prince and kisses him right and he has a dream about this later on which directly leads to christopher getting angry and and raping kathy because uh, he overhears the dream and that kathy has kissed another man yeah and he says oh, you could get us caught and also you're mine um and and he then rapes her but um that's he's a strange character. Again, he does nothing. He's just this passive guy. He's a total patsy. Yeah. And also, men are driven by sex in this book. So Chris and and Bar is his name. Bar. He's such a yeah. non-entity. Yeah. I don't even remember his name. But men are driven by sex. Um, but they can't help it. No, they can't. No, and it's sort of up to women to sort of yeah to sort of rule that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. W- yeah. Men are driven by sex, and women are driven by things. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, because Corinne's sort of ever ever expanding array of jewellery and clothes is always described. And mm-hmm. she has this, this bedroom, which, again, is a bedroom I'm never going to forget in my entire life. She has this huge swan bed yeah. that um, used to belong to a French courtesan, which makes no sense in this, like, Bible-bashing household. Yeah. But yet she has it. And just, like, gown after gown, mink after mink. And also she keeps up this insane pretends to them that she's going to secretarial school every day so she can acquire some skills so they can like flee the attic and it's so heartbreaking how slowly this fantasy goes by the roadside do you know what I mean so they ask her every day like how's how's your shorthand course going mom how's this because her whole thing was like I have no skills yeah like I I was only taught how to be a beautiful woman that's all I can do um and it's just, it's so heartbreaking. And she's like, just obviously stops going or perhaps never went at all. Mm. And, and, they're, and they're holding on to it. They're like, how about your shorthand though? Yeah. Yeah. And there's one part where they're like, how long does it take to become a, a really great secretary, mom? And she goes, I don't know, a month. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that. But it's, it's um, A, it's, it's classic gaslighting. Yeah. I mean, this is a real a book about abuse and how, they believe in her for as long as they possibly can, mm-hmm. which is something that, you know, that's the truth about child abuse, I think. Yeah. Um, that they want to believe that their mother is a good person. Um, and it takes a very long time to really realize. And, you know, and they could have escaped at any point. And it's only the irrevocable proof that she is a bad person that yeah. makes them leave. Yeah, that's so true. They wait until the last possible moment when they just cannot put up with any more from her, and then they go. But the other thing you were talking about, about how the women are motivated by you know money and power, but yet Corinne has nothing can't do anything to get this money and power. It's mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a lesson in there, you know, for the readers, the female readers of the book. Really, yeah. guys, you got to get some marketable skills. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's just never going to be enough. Woman, <laughs> everybody looks after is just not going to be enough. Yeah, there there is definitely like a kind of a, a proto-feminist vibe going on in there, which buried, is buried negatively. super deep. <laughs> but yeah, with the women having all the power and being the bad guys and having all the agency. Yeah. But also, you know, don't marry your brother. <laughs> should, should we should we quickly summarize what happens in these sequels? 
I, I don't know. I, I can't remember. I've read them all, but I've forgotten them. And to be honest, I forgot that Corey died when I had really. Read this. I only remembered the incest. He's not a very strong character. <laughs> you can kind of forget he exists at all. Um, but yeah, to to summarize, they 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 do. Um, they they leave the attic and they are adopted by a nice rich doctor who Kathy later marries. <laughs> okay, um, and then. Um, they basically spend their entire lives trying to fight the fact that they are irrevocably changed and cannot be normal. They will never be normal. He's he's a doctor. She's a dancer. Carrie um, goes to like a boarding school and is bullied for never being able to grow past like four foot ten kind of thing. She's basically chased um, very, very short her whole life and doesn't develop as a woman typically does. Um, and... They have to fight this sort of scar of their lives, this whole thing. And then eventually they basically give in, move to California and live as husband and wife. After Carrie's dead. After Carrie is dead. Carrie dies too. <laughs> Killing herself. Oh my God, she kills herself with the same yeah. arsenic that she kills does. her brother, Corey. So the, yeah, it's it, it actually, it's very interesting. Um, the, the prose style in Flowers in the Attic is weird. It is among the oddest prose you'll ever read it's so it's very gothic novel yeah very gothic novel with all the exclamation points the heightened language yeah the sort of fairy tale imagery everything is hyper gendered mm-hmm. um which happens in gothic novels so the men are you know strong i mean they're all idiots right and they do nothing but they're yeah. all strong and prince-like and the women are all fantastically beautiful or crones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no average looking woman. No, child main or crone, that is it. Um, And there's a lot, yeah, as I said, a lot of exclamation points. Everything is so exciting. Yeah, even when nothing's happening. Yeah. It's incredibly extreme. The the, the way they talk to each other are not the way people talk to each other. You have to get used to that very early on if you're going to like enjoy the novel. You're like, people don't talk normally to each other. No, there's this one point where they're having this big party. Yes. um, And uh, for for the father's birthday before he dies and, and the police walk in and they narrate how he died. Do you remember that? Oh, my God. Yeah, what is it? He's like... And they say, well, this happened, and he could have survived. But then this happened. (laughs) He could have survived that. But then this happened. And everybody at the party is going... (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) It is not. It's the language that... See, you don't have the soap operas here that we used to have That's in America, it is but it's soap, soap opera. opera language. And it becomes more soap opera as the books go on. It becomes more, she's my daughter and my sister. <laughs> like, it, like the, the webs of incest become deeper and deeper as each yeah. book goes on. And it makes me so curious, for many reasons, about Virginia Andrews herself, um, of, of which, like, not that much is known. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do know about Virginia Andrews is that she was a wheelchair user from a very young age, um, and that she lived with her mother, and that she was writing a lot from many people think from the perspective of being someone who literally couldn't leave her parent, you know, which I find very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also interesting because the way disability is talked about in Flowers in the Attic is shocking, even for the time, right? Yes, there's a sense of like. The children are perfect and beautiful. Yes. And if, they keep coming back to the thing, if we were truly incestuous um, spawn of the devil, we would be um, mentally or physically damaged, right? Yes. Which is a bonkers way to talk about disabled people when you yourself are disabled. Yes. What the heck, what is that about? (laughs) 
I can't even begin. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because even in the sequels we're talking about, the cast of characters is quite small, relatively, mm-hmm. because they're all related to each other. When a new non-relative comes in, you're like, you're not going to last. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> They're all together, and then you know, talk about the the name is Dollinganger, which is a cross between doll and doppelganger. Yeah. So yeah. you know, they're all carbon copies of each other, and 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 all of that. So it's it's so confined, mm-hmm. not just the setting, but the stories themselves. And apparently, the inspiration for this book came from uh, when because Virginia went went to the hospital a lot for various spinal operations, um, etc. And apparently while she was at the hospital, which actually explains why there's so much fascination with doctors in her in the books as well. Yeah. Um, she was told about these children that were discovered in an attic who were kept up there for six years because oh, really? of because of it. So apparently it is inspired by a true story. A true story that we have no record of. It's completely um What's the word? Apocryphal. Apocryphal, yes. But it actually, I think what what maybe terrified me the most about this book when I was when I first read it as a kid was it begins with this prologue um, where she she says, every word I put down, I put down with tears, with bitter blood, with sour gall, well mixed and blended with shame and guilt. I thought I would never feel ashamed or guilty that these were burdens for others to bear. Years have passed. I'm older and wiser now, accepting to... The rage has, that once stormed within me has simmered down so I can write, I hope, with truth and less hatred and prejudice than would have been a few years ago. Like Dickens, in this work of fiction, I will hide myself away behind a false name and live in fake places and pray to God that those who should will hurt when they read what I have to say. It feels... Obviously, now if I pick that up, I'd be like, oh, that's, of course, you know, that's just the author creating a thing, right? Mm-hmm. But my 12-year-old brain was like, oh, my God, it's real. It's all real. This yeah. is real. And I think that added a lot to the the shock and the intrigue, right? She uses that technique in a way. It's, it's a really traditional technique, as you say. But as yeah. you read it, you're like, oh, wow, did that really happen to her? Is, right? she, is she really looking back on it? And that's a nice little introduction that she's got there because it gives you a perspective on it. from Because all the way, we're really stuck in this child's head. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is one of the only places where we get lifted out of the child's head a little bit yeah. to see that she can see how weird it is what's going on yeah. later on and that it's changed her forever and that it's going to blight her life for the rest of it. And also not from a perspective of like, when I remember my terrible youth but everything's better now, yeah. it's like I am bitter and I write this out of revenge. Revenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no quiet for her ever. Yeah. This is a great... It, I think it might appeal to teenage girls, not just because of all the agency, but also because it's just, it's so powerful. This book is an act of revenge. Yeah. She yeah. was powerless during this book, but now she has the power and she's sort of pointing it back at the people who did it to her. Uh, and it's it's such a fantasy, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Like that you can get, like, have this revenge on your teachers or your or your what the authority figures that you can't control and all you have is the hope that one day yeah. you will rue the day. <laughs> but this was her debut novel. No. Was it? I didn't think it was. I but. thought it was. Maybe it's not. But she she wrote this one and all the sequels and yeah. then she wrote My Sweet Audrina. Yeah. And then 
Um, she died. Yeah, and then they kept writing her books. There have been seventy <laughs> odd books since. Yeah, if you look at Which, the beginning there, written by a ghostwriter. Um, I can't remember his name now. His yes insult. And well, he's a, he's quite a well known writer in his own right. So he also writes um, popular fiction. Uh, under his own name as well, and under this name, yeah, a, an incredibly prolific man. How do you feel about? Like, I mean, it kind of lends to the sort of like gothic, ghostly appeal of B.C. Andrews, right? That she wrote seventy books after she died. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about? I mean, because you've ghostwritten in the past, haven't you? Uh, not ghostwritten. I've written under a pseudonym. Okay. Um, no, I don't think I could ghost. That that takes putting your own self aside in a way that I would find really difficult. Really. I think. But I do wonder, and I, I have not read any of the ghosted novels. No, I don't see the point. Like, I, I, I'm only really interested in in the Dollingangers. <laughs> but I'd be interested in knowing if if the men have no agency in them. Like, yeah, in this one. And like every single cover is just like a woman with long hair looking over her shoulder, being like, mm. <laughs> and they're so blonde. So when I was the age when I wrote that, when I read this, I wanted to be blonde. And have long hair and have yeah. blue eyes, oh, totally. perfect skin, and be a dancer. Right, I'm a clumsy Jewish girl, <laughs> and I that was what I wanted to the extent where um, we have two people in my family called three people in my family called Julie. My mother's sister is also called mm-hmm. called Julie. That's very Dollinganger. That's quite Dollinganger. Um, and in order to differentiate us from each other. Um, we both have brown hair, but I'm blonde, Julie, because I insisted <laughs> okay. so much when oh, I was no. young that I was blonde. That's so cute, Julie. <laughs> so I just put myself in there, and I I, I did want to be Kathy in this book, even yeah. though she has such a horrible time of it um, and has all these unnatural desires. I really identified with her very, very strongly when I read this book. Um, despite, she's got a lot of drawbacks in, in like her vanity, I remember being like, why does she like herself so much? I hate myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But like she is genuinely, she becomes like a mother figure to these, these kids and she becomes mm-hmm. a real responsible, quite level-headed person. And, mm-hmm. and she has a, it's weird, she is kind of the queen of that kingdom, you know, yeah, that is. tiny, horrible kingdom. Um, which was kind of appealing, you know, in a mm. hideous way. In a hideous way. Yeah. Everything in this is appealing in a hideous way. <laughs> but, you know, so it's okay. It's okay to have things appealing in a hideous way. Yeah. Um, I was really interested in your DM that you sent when we decided to talk about this mm-hmm. book. When you're saying um, you'd spoken to a lot of queer women who yeah. identified with it because it was so aspirational and yet so not normal. Right? I think there's a lot in that. I think that sense of, um, because the whole it's all about having the wrong desire. That's what the book mm-hmm. is about, right? Yeah, it is, yeah. Ha- like um, feeling something and it feeling so natural to you and yet it is so unnatural to the people around you. And especially with these allusions to God all the time. God mm-hmm. is, is rammed down their throats and the more God is, is pressed on them, the harder they rebel against it, right? Mm-hmm. And I just think that is... So much of the queer experience, right? Yeah. For a lot of people, yeah. you know? It is. And I didn't realize that when I was reading it. Obviously, I had, I really had no clue. But um, reading it now, I can see that very, very clearly. Yeah. I can see that now in my 12-year-old self. Wow. Because it, it, uh, above and beyond that, it's just so camp, you know? It's really camp. <laughs> oh, 
my god, Heather Graham in the film. Oh my god, Heather. <laughs> so there were many films, but there was a film in the eighties made, and then it was remade for a Lifetime very recently. And Heather Graham is basically like Joan Crawfording it out, right? There is she is a drag queen. She is a drag queen. I think it's the bulging eyes really help as well. <laughs> And I love Heather Graham. She is so beautiful. And um, she really looks horrible. In she, and oh my God, the old age makeup. Oh, is just something else. And Elaine Stritch as the, uh, as the grandmother. And she, she's a pretty big deal. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. But I thought that was perfect casting because you're, you're the sort of aging doll. But yes, very, very camp. Right. Um, in a way, though, like, I think those Lifetime movies made a pretty good stab at, at you know, adapting it. But I, I said to you before we started recording, I don't think you can adapt this because so much is reliant on the mood and the mm-hmm. casting. Because I think casting directors just said, okay, we need four blonde kids um, who need to gradually get sick. <laughs> um, um, and also become completely perverted within, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I don't think there's any teen actor who can pull that off. I think it needs to be like an animation. I would love to see it, like get a Studio Ghibli sort of effect, you know. With all of that. Because it is, a, it's a psycho story, right? It's a, it's yeah. a story of Kathy's mind. Yeah. Um, and she's trapped in this attic, which is her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so portraying it on a screen where you don't have that level of subjectivity yeah. would be very exactly. difficult to yeah. really get the full sort of force of full, the desire. The, the, like the, the souring book. of this girl as well, you know? Yeah. You really need, and unless you're going to have just a young woman shouting for 40 minutes. <laughs> you know? It's very difficult to get so into somebody's head in a film. Yeah. So would you, what, how would you see this ideally adapted? Would it be like a Wes Anderson sort of puppet Fantastic Mr. Fox thing? Or like a, a Studio Ghibli thing or a Pixar thing or like imagine. Um, animation would work really well because then you can use, I mean, have you seen Spider-Man into Spider-Verse? I haven't yet, no. Oh, my God. So <laughs> the, the thing about the animation is that in that is that it portrays a mood as well as a character. Mm-hmm. And so it, it can do things in really interesting ways. I think this would be very interesting and animated, but not Wes Anderson. He's too cold and quirky. Yeah, He's too yeah, removed. yeah. You need to get right inside and see how passionate it is. Oh, Lots of red and black. Right. I think I might have said Wes Anderson because I think that stop motion thing for the attic would have been quite interesting, you know? They have a dollhouse in the book. Yeah. Um, and they of the house itself, right? am I right, or is it just a, a very nice dollhouse? I don't know. That maybe becomes a symbol. For but it house. was her mother's, and I think it was her grandmother's before yeah. that. So it's, it's been passed down through the fa- everything is passed down through the family in this book. So <laughs> so it's been passed down, and then Corey traps a mouse, yes. and feeds him, and so the mouse then becomes their trapped pet, like they're yeah. trapped. Who in comes the to attic. love them? And yes, and then and then they kill him. They kill the mouse eventually. With they the same do. powdered donut that killed Corey. So they do the same thing to this poor mouse that their mother but did to them. To prove to themselves that this is indeed what is happening. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that mouse loves the dollhouse and runs around it. So wouldn't that be a great sort of visual oh, image God. for everything that was going on? Wes Anderson would do that very well. A great well. gif, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I would delight to see that gif. <laughs> Okay, Julie, I think we should probably start to wrap up now, but um, I'd love to hear about what you're working on. And you just had a book that came out yes. yesterday, I believe. Uh, Thursday. 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 Yeah. Very recently. Tell me a little about that. Does anyone fuck their brother? Uh, not in that one, no. <laughs> <laughs> not in that one. <laughs> um, 
No, it's called Louis and Louise, and it's uh, one story about one person called Lou Alder, mm-hmm. um, who was born in 1978 in Casablanca, Maine, mm-hmm. um, one year before this book came out. Oh. <laughs> um, but it's two realities. So in one reality, Lou Alder is born male, mm-hmm. Louis Alder, and in one reality, Lou Alder is born female, Louise Alder. And because of that one change, um, everything else in their life is different. So the ripples of the gender that they're assigned at birth ripple out into their community, their family, their friends, and everywhere around. So it's one life lived twice is the tagline we've got. That on the sounds front. great. And can Thank I get you. that Waterstones foils all the usual places? Yes. I can't wait to buy it. Thank you so much, Julie. This has been fab. Thanks, Caroline. I've really enjoyed yeah. myself. <laughs> Don't poison yourself on the way out. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Sentimental Garbage. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to Amy Jones about Joanne Harris's Chocolat. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Varrell.